This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Chasing Tales Outdoor Podcast. If this is your first time listening, my name is Walter and I am the host of this podcast. Our goal is quite simple. We just want to inspire you to get outside and enjoy the great outdoors. We're going to bring you tales, stories, tactics, all kinds of fun things. And we just hope that every day you enjoy the the podcast and take away one nugget of information, one thing that you can apply to become a better outdoorsman. So with that said, I'm flying a little solo tonight. Normally I've got a co-host here with me, but uh, he was in Gainesville and I traveled up to the public grouse film tour up in Thomasville, Georgia. It was a great time. I got to meet with a lot of guys that do a lot of upland hunting, which is something I don't have the the background in. It's something I've always thought would be something fun. And I got to brush shoulders with a lot with a lot of awesome people who hunt grouse, who hunt quail, you know, who who do a lot of upland hunting, which is just something that fascinates me to to know in. So it was a great experience and the tour, the the film itself was amazing. It was a beautiful work of art and it just inspired me to get outside a little more and and to uh, work a little harder to get on top of out upland pursuits. So if you're listening to this right now and you want to host a couple guys from Florida, Chase and I will drive to you uh, if you're willing to uh, show us what it's like to be an upland hunter. I've got no clue. I don't know what the etiquette is, and that's something we're probably going to touch on more coming up because I'm thoroughly captivated by this idea. This episode features a couple guys uh, from the state of Georgia that I have had the, the pr- pleasure of 
listening to and watching from afar, uh, I've wanted to have both these gentlemen on the podcast for quite some time, and this event literally gave us that opportunity to do it in person. I've been telling you guys we're going to do more of these in person as often as we can, and this was a blast. It it was such a fun time. We actually had to cut the episode short because we started recording at like 10 o'clock at night. I had an hour and a half drive to get home. I didn't get home till like 2 a.m., <laughs> which I'm not complaining. It was an awesome time, but uh, we're going to kind of keep this episode kind of short or this intro kind of short because this is a long episode. It's an hour and a half long. It's a very, uh, it's a heavy topic um, that we did our best to lighten up as we can, but we're talking about the conservation of our outdoor heritage. We're talking about the conservation of our public lands and the conservation of upland hunting in the Southeast and nationwide, actually. So this is kind of a heavier topic. It's a little more intense, but it's a good time and it's a good dialogue. And I hope you come away with it having uh, learned something maybe you didn't know before. So with that said, let's thank the people who make this podcast possible. And that's Tethered, which is our title sponsor. If you haven't heard about the Phantom Saddle, it's their newest offering uh, to the saddle hunting community, you know that Chase and I are massive, massive saddle hunters. We, we adore it. It is easily the, the best way to, to, to run and gun across the United States, in our opinion. And we'll continue to do so. So once we get our Phantom, we're going to do a review, put that up there for you guys to see, tell you all about the awesome features. And I hope that you go to tetherednation.com and uh, check out what they've got to offer. And if you got any questions, hit them up. Let them know we sent you that way. And uh, we appreciate you guys. Also, our Patreon subscribers, you guys choose to support the show on a month-to-month basis, and it helps us do what we do. The money uh, for recording equipment, for gas, for travels, for video cameras. I mean, this is literally like the the, the backbone of of what we need here, and you guys support us day-to-day in ways that just make us smile. It, It drives us every day to work a lot harder to provide you with better and better content. So thank you guys. And if you don't know what Patreon is, let me tell you a couple things about it. One, it's a monthly subscription service that only costs you a couple bucks a month. And that money goes to the operating costs of this show. And as a way to say thank you, we send out hats, decals, and we do quarterly giveaways. And this quarter, we're giving away the Trophy Ridge React 5 site. This is a $150 site that we're going to send to you guys for you to to, uh, use our way of saying thank you. So stay tuned. There are some awesome giveaways coming down the pipe as well. We've got some some fun stuff that we're going to give away. And we've got some more reviews we're going to do as well. So... Uh, thank you guys for making this show possible, and I hope you enjoy this show, and I hope at the end of this show, you will go and sign up for your local public grouse film tour. It is an amazing experience, free beer, free food, awesome guys, some wonderful fellowship. I made some friends and some connections that I know are going to last a lifetime here, so if you're a new hunter listening to this, or if you're look, you know, trying to find guys locally that you can, you can link up with and have a good time, maybe find a new hunting partner or a hunting mentor, I encourage you to go to this place because I felt like I made three or four new friends that, uh, like I said, I'm going to spend uh, the rest of my days talking with, sharing experiences with, and learning from. So with that, guys, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for tuning in again this week, and I hope you enjoy the show. Well, I am, it is about 1022. This will go down in history as officially the latest podcast uh, the Chase and Tales uh, has ever recorded. But I can't say that I'm actually even upset about that in the slightest. I am wired. I'm probably not going to sleep for a while because I'm an emotional dude. Okay. Uh, if, if, if you're listening to this and you saw any of my YouTube videos this year, you, you can tell that the outdoors has a visceral connection with my soul. And tonight we watched a film that 
there were several times that guys are like, you know, joking and laughing. Everybody's enjoying it. And the whole time I'm like, God, just shut up. I'm like, I'm, I'm plugged in. Like, I remember what it was like to be in a place like that, you know? And it was like, it really spoke to me what, where we were today. And we're going to get to that eventually. But before I take this uh, too far in the wrong direction and make it about myself, I want to introduce uh, the two gentlemen that we've got here. So you can do it best. You are yourself. Who are you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, I'm uh, Chris, Chris Jenkins. Uh, I uh, My day job, I'm the uh, chief executive officer of the Orianne Society, which is a wildlife conservation nonprofit. And then uh, I am also, I've been on the Southeast Board for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And um, I'm currently the chairman for Georgia, and we are working towards becoming an independent chapter as of this upcoming June. So the interesting thing, and I haven't told you this before, and I wanted to tell you this when we had the microphone in your face, but we have, we're going on year, I think either three or four with this podcast. And every year, year over year, there's been one person recommended to this podcast as someone they wanted to see on here that I have yet to reach out and have you on. And that was you. Every year I put out a little thing like this year, we're planning this, this year's show. Who do you want to have on? And you were one of the dudes that I wanted to do an in-person podcast with because they're such better. They're just a richer experience. I'm sure you know. Sure, yeah. Um, and uh, so I am glad to say that we finally got to sit down and, and do one of these. And embarrassingly enough, I spoke with this gentleman on the phone for like 30 minutes, and he kept giving me very subtle hints as to who he was. I and don't it, think I was giving you. <laughs> <laughs> you said you did, you said I do reptile work, or I do a lot of you know. Yeah, I'm, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I'm laying in bed like two days later. Oh my God, that was Chris Jenkins. You got on the phone. Like I had this like moment. Like I cannot believe I didn't even like once tell him I was your fan or, or, or love what you guys do. So glad you're here. Thanks for having me. We're yeah. glad to be able to do the the work we do. It's about the reptiles, though. So yeah, not about me. The, the reptiles are the are the stars. So that's it. That's it. Well, across from us, we've got a a fellow that probably most of our listeners know exactly who he is. Yeah, I'm uh, Nathan Henderson. I am. Um, I'm an IT guy for my day job, and uh, I also co-host a podcast called Cast and Blast Florida with Travis and Emily Thompson. Yeah. Um, and you've had Travis on your podcast before, mm-hmm. talking about Florida duck hunting. And um, I'm also the vice chair for Georgia BHA, and once we become a full-fledged chapter, um, I'm on the. I'm also on the Southeast board as like a uh, kind of a co BHA uh, Georgia chair for the Southeast board. And then once we really become a j- chapter, I'll be the vice chair for, for Georgia. So, and, um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> you are, you are definitely the backbone of the cast and blast. Podcast, Thank you. Right? Thank you for saying <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Travis, did you hear that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. If you, if you, we have a very predominant Florida listener base, Florida, Georgia, actually listening base. I'd say probably, a third of our downloads every week come from those two listener bases, and then mm-hmm. we've got little isolated pockets of California and Ohio and Pennsylvania. But in the South, it's Georgia and Florida by and large. So I am certain that both you gentlemen are, are no stranger to a lot of the listeners. And I'm thrilled to have shared an evening, uh, like I said, over such an uh, exciting event. Tonight was the, and correct me if I, if I get this wrong, it was the Project Grouse by Project Upland and BHA. Public, what I say? Public Grouse. Dead gummit. I know. <laughs> Public Grouse Public Film Grouse. Festival. There we go. 
but put on by Project Upland, okay. who's the production company of the yep. – and then Georgia BHA – or, yeah. well, BHA National, really, uh, but uh, put on by Georgia BHA as yeah. a sponsor. So, Well, as a man who has never – have a shortage of words myself i have like this dyslexia with the organization of them in my head so i appreciate you guys uh setting the record straight the whole time up i was telling myself you know public crowds project health and probably of course i'm still messed it up but you know <laughs> all right the good news is what i can do is i edit so i can just cut it out there and you say go. we Perfect. we were at the and then tr- you know you, right, you, you, just, you, you just uh come right in but so tell everybody about that Who, whoever wants to take the lead on that tell everybody what that is because i've got a consumer uh, vision of what that is, but I think that's kind of a personal experience for everybody, and I'd like you guys to to express what the intent of tonight was. I'll I'll give it in a very general way, and then maybe Nathan can give it in a more specific way. But you know, for me, you know, if you look at upland bird hunting in North America, you know we've got we've got all the some species are doing relatively well but most of them that are doing relatively well are the species that that uh you know are actually non-natives and if you start to think about it many of our native grouse species have declined significantly and it may seem kind of counterintuitive to some people but being able to continue to hunt these animals is one of the things that will ultimately save them so um and key to that is public land and so this, in my mind, was a celebration of these amazing animals that are really have declined pretty significantly. Are the need to to hunt these animals so they can continue to survive, and the importance of of public land for them. So, yeah, and I, you know, and like you said, the public land because of the habitat that they have to have, and mm-hmm. they have to have uh, varying degrees of habitat. You know, successional growth throughout the entire spectrum. So, like early successional to old growth. They got to have a little bit of everything. Right. And proper forest management is one of those things. And, um, you know, we as a, we as a state chapter are going to be watching this, um, foothills, the Chattahoochee foothills project, uh, coming up and they're, and they're talking about all this, you know, different management and some thinning and some burning and some, you know, really getting some of these forests back to a place where, wildlife can really thrive and one of those wildlife being rough grouse in north georgia in the north georgia mountains and um so that's what this film festival is about it's about the public land it's about um the grouse on those public land and how we as hunters really are the ones that are keeping them from going extinct and there was an article not that long ago i saw it was like bird numbers in general are declining but waterfowl numbers are not because of the hunter funded dollars that, you know, we, we contribute every year. And, um, and that, and the article pointed that out and it was like an NPR or it was, a, you know, it's a, it was a, you know, national, that was a recent, that was a recent very article. Recent. Yeah, yeah. Like a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and that, and, and it kind of just highlights why we do this. Um, why we, you know, it's people think it's counterintuitive. I love animals, so I hunt them, you know, but it's, but it's true. And, um, so this film was really to highlight that and to highlight the importance of the public lands and to highlight the importance of the conservation of these of these birds. Yeah, one one thing I'd add to that is that that you know, we both talked about grouse and these these particular animals, but you know, take North Georgia mountains where I live and and you know, the place that we have grouse here in in the state of Georgia and 
you know, it's not just the grouse. It's so many other things are linked to early successional habitat. Um, You know, our deer populations, for example, in the mountains of Georgia, you know, have declined significantly as our entire forest has become an 80 plus year old forest. So um, it's important not only for the grouse, but for a lot of other species like white-tailed right. deer um, to, to, you know, get some more of these natural disturbance type dynamics mm-hmm. back into these forests. Right. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that you asked what this event was about. The other piece, so that's the big picture, but, you know, organizationally from a backcountry hunters and anglers perspective to me this was an exciting night we had some i didn't really do much but but everybody else worked really (laughs) hard and and put together a a great event Um, we've held other events in georgia but this is the first event where we've been working towards you know building our own chapter so it was um, an exciting event for me we'll have more of an official launch uh, coming up within the next year, which will be a, a big event in Atlanta. But this, in my mind, was kind of an icebreaker in that regard. And, and a lot of the, a lot of the guys, again, besides me, did a lot of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, we have a, a diverse audio listener group. It, it's it's very bizarre to me, and I don't know. I, I've tried to discuss you know, downloads and stuff with other podcasters, but that's kind of like talking about your income. So everybody keeps it kind of close to the vest. And I think a lot of people just don't care. Uh, Also a downloads, a download. It doesn't really matter as long as they don't decline. I'm doing something right. But I'm always fascinated by the analytics of where downloads come from and the feedback that you hear from. And we've got a, an, uh, I think what I think is an oddly disproportionate non hunting base, base, non outdoors base. It seems like they're tuning in, because they like to hear the stories, they like to hear the perspectives, they're interested, right? Um, I think a lot of people have very long commutes, we talked about that earlier, and I think that something that isn't tactic-based strikes people in that regard. I'm not bragging, I'm just saying I think that's what why they, uh, they found us. And we've also found a very large new hunter base the word gets abused, adult onset hunters. Well, a lot of them. Uh, we, we did a, a how-to tactics episode, and our Facebook inbox blew up with people saying, hey, I've been trying to hunt for years, and I can't figure this out. Can you help me with that? So we talked, we've said this like nine times now, the importance of public lands, right? Why? Functionally, why are those public lands, for the people who may not be familiar with this, why are are vast, in this case, Georgia, Florida, here in the southeast, we've got a, a, a vast amount of, of public lands. Why are those key to the conservation of rough grouse or grouse in general? Um, well, because that's where a lot of their habitat lies in the southeast especially. I mean, if in the North Georgia mountains, a lot of the private land up there is either farmed or ranched or some kind of agriculture, and grouse don't really thrive in agriculture. They have to have ground cover. They have to have... Um, you know, short trees and bushes and mm-hmm. thick, like thick areas. And agriculture just doesn't, isn't good for that. And so most of those areas that uh, these grouse thrive or live are on public lands. And that's why they're so important is because without those public lands, those turn into private lands and they turn into some form of agriculture or uh, they get totally clear cut or, you know, you know, whatever uh, they put houses on them you know and and the green space is gone at that point sure and so without the public lands there's no good habitat for grouse to even exist and um and you're talking about early onset hunters 
and um, most of these people that are getting into hunting mm-hmm. have little to no private land access at all. Like they don't know anybody. They don't have. Maybe they have like a uncle who's got a farm or something like that. But most of what these people are doing is they're getting out on public lands. Sure. So that's the flip side to the. That's another point to the importance of public lands is that if we want hunter numbers to increase, we got to have this access. And without this access, you know, one of the main reasons that people quit hunting is because of access, mm-hmm. right? So uh, to increase and to continue the access we have um, will help to keep our heritage of hunting alive. So what about the ability, the, the fact that we have uh, biologists at our disposal that can make changes on huge swaths of land like that? Whereas, for instance, if it was all private, you have to convince the landowner to make those changes, and it might not be beneficial for them to make those changes. I feel like that's also a huge advantage to these swaths of public lands that through a series of events, like you did point out, they kind of took the parts that people didn't want and turned it into national forest. And it just so happened that those areas happened to be specific. We also have the ability through policy to go in and affect millions of acres, relatively speaking with the, with, with the right. snap of our fingers. I, I mean, I would say, first of all, it is true. So, you know, our national forests, for example, where most of our grouse live, there are biologists and land managers that have the expertise and can make these these changes. However, you know, it's important to th- every for everybody to think about these lands. These are public lands. We all own them. Mm-hmm. And there are processes set up by which any time that, say, the Forest Service wants to do something, that, that they have to go through a process by which the public provides input so it, it doesn't just happen sure snap sure, of sure. fingers and and it what that really stresses is, is how important it is for everybody to to get involved um in the way that they want to see their forests managed because again they own it the government's providing the opportunity for them to provide comments um for how, how this happens on the ground in the, in the project that that nathan mentioned the the um, it's called the Foothills Land uh, Landscape Planning Project is a great example. <clears throat> this uh, uh, bringing together multiple stakeholders, and they're discussing how to manage that that piece of land. So, anyways, the point is is that public input is huge on management of public lands, and you know if you you know you can sit around and say, oh, I, you know I want to see the forest like this. It used to be like that, but if you're not involved. You know, then then you don't have a say. So it's just kind of a shout out for everybody to to get out there. And right, and and you also hear people like, oh, just let nature take its course. It's going to take its course. Well, in Florida, in Georgia alone, there are like thirty five million people. Nature has long since quit <laughs> taking its course. I mean, when you have that many people on the landscape sure. and that much, you know, manipulation of the landscape with roads and and cities and developments and houses and uh you, nature doesn't take its course like it used to so and well the other thing is you know we have fire suppression and we quit logging and we you know so all these things and and so now we as a people have to step in and say okay if we want our lands and wildlife to thrive we have to make some of these changes happen like it's just not going to happen naturally it's just not going to you know we have to step in as a human race to say, I care about this. I care about these lands. I care about these, these wildlife. And that means wildlife from the beetle to the bear. Right. So, um, and you know, 
and you can't manage for just one thing. When you manage for one thing, you're managing for all of it. And one change for one, one change for the better for one species is a change for the better for pretty much all species. So, and that's what, you know, we have to step in because nature's just not going to take its course anymore. And so that's what this, you know, this uh, landscape project's all about. And, you know, just building habitat and, and creating better habitat for wildlife um, for the betterment of all recreational users, consumptive or non-consumptive. Right. Because nobody wants to go on a hike and be like, oh, I didn't even see a deer, you know? Right. People, right. when they go on a hike and they see a deer, oh, I saw a deer, you know? Yeah. Um, well, so, some of this is changing a public perception. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because I remember, I distinctly remember, and I was thinking about this during the film, I remember, you know, the, oh, you know how terrible it was when we clear cut everything? Do you remember how we planted trees to fix that problem? Big trees means a healthy forest. I remember that, I'm not going to call it brainwashing, because it was it was not a bad movement what happened. But we never, the pendulum swings back and forth, and it's our job to try and keep it somewhere in that middle. And I feel like it swung too far the opposite direction, and people think healthy forest means everything looks the exact same. Right. It's nothing but giant, massive trees, as tall as we can grow them, and that's simply not the case, right? Correct. The, the way I think of it, uh, you know, these uh, up in, you know, say in North Georgia where grouse occur, right. is historically it would have looked much, much different. These areas that Nathan was talking about where we have most of our private land, that's mostly in the valley bottoms. And so you have to imagine a landscape before, you know, European descendants were there, before even Native Americans were there, um, that you know, you would have had beaver wetlands right. that were like these massive, you know, areas that went for miles and miles and you had meadows and, and different age beaver wetlands with young trees and grasses and um, all of that's gone <clears throat> for the most part. I mean, I can count the number of beaver in mm -hmm. the county I live in on two hands, you know, it's gone. So fire, which historically mm -hmm. would have played a significant role um, in certain habitat types in these mountain ecosystems. It, it's gone. It doesn't function naturally. If we want it, we have to prescribe it. We have to do it ourselves. And maybe even so, prevent it in some cases, right? I mean, we, we don't want it to just burn what remains. Right. Yes, and we, and we do that quite a bit as well. And, and we need to protect sure. human you know, houses and, and other uh, you know, types of uh, buildings right. and such. But um, anyways, the point is these natural disturbance regimes, this landscape – it's changed so, so significantly. And those places where there would have been young forest, you know, they've all grown to be old. And so if we want things like grouse mm -hmm. in the state of Georgia, if we mm -hmm. want healthy grouse populations, we are going to have to do some management of those forests. We can't have this even-aged, completely old-growth forest. Don't get me wrong. Old growth is a really important component right. of a healthy forest. Absolutely. But I'm just... You, you're, if your entire forest is in that state, it's uh, it's not going to be good for a lot of species, including grouse. Well, and I mean, let's let's take it from grouse because there's probably somebody going, I don't care about grouse, right? And maybe maybe you don't live in an area with grouse. Everybody likes bear, right? And I was looking at a study the other night in preparation for tonight about these monoculture, basically uh, old growth forests, and they they tracked these bear in the Pisgah National Forest. This one section of the Pisgah National, uh, pretty sure it's Pisgah, and uh, basically they tracked their movements, and they never went to the core of this huge, huge two hundred and fifty thousand acre sw uh, sw swath. They would cross it, 
like it was some big migratory path, but they, they, they stayed along the border. And you know what you found around, along that border were subdivisions and farms and areas, and there was a transition like what you were talking about. So if you don't care about grouse, and that's fine. You don't have to care about grouse. If you like bear, if you like rabbits and deer and turkey and all the other things that are, that are out there, whether you're a hunter or not, they all depend on some diversity to, to, to the habitat. And it's the evidence seems quite damning that it's it's something has to be done. So I, I postulate this question to you. We have very limited amounts of what remains. How do you convince people that going in there and diversifying that is still good for the ecosystem? I'll let you take that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, honestly, that to me, so I moved here from the Rocky Mountains, a very wild place. And I moved to a very wild place, the Chattahoochee National Forest. I live in and amongst the, you know, the county I live in is about 75% public land. Um, I moved here and I saw this very interesting situation. And uh, nothing against Atlanta. But <clears throat> the Chattahoochee National Forest has become like the playground for urban people. That's a gross generalization, but to a large degree, it's true. It's heavy, heavy recreational use in, of all sectors. And so it's, uh, it, it's really this, like, uh, this urbanization that we're seeing across the country and the dying of rural America. So I, perhaps more than a lot of national forests, an urban population has a heavy, heavy impact on the Chattahoochee National Forest and a series of urban values, which are not all bad, but I would argue that in general, uh, they probably don't understand some of these dynamics as well right. within the forest. But so in my mind, it surprised me moving here because it, it's, it really kind of highlighted that urban rural divide. But you live in a very rural place, but perhaps again, more than a lot of national forests, you have more of an urban influence on the forest. So to get to your question, um, in general, those forces have pushed to prevent management and, um, you know, kind of resulted in the situation we had, to, right. and we I had think, today. And I think people who come from Atlanta, like an urban area, and they go and they pull up to their favorite trailhead and they see, like, bulldozers and logging equipment, they're like, okay, well, this is weird, right? right? And right. so – it's it's not a you know they have this image of a pristine like mountain wilderness kind of thing and like a beautiful trout stream and all the stuff and and that's all there and it's beautiful and it's great but in order to have even more beautiful and more diverse and more wildlife in an area you have to sometimes bring in a bulldozer and bring in some you know logging equipment and maybe burn some areas like it's just it's all part of the process that uh, you know and convincing people that like you know this this beautiful mountain hillside that you can see that you can see for like 500 yards because there's no undergrowth isn't necessarily good for the mountain i mean it's just really not and so but uh you know convincing people of that is is a difficult task and um unless you are a hunter or unless you do understand some form of wildlife and land management it's hard to kind of wrap your head around because when you pull up to your favorite trailhead to go hiking and somebody's and they're like and there's smoke in the air or there's a people cutting down trees. It's like okay, this is weird, right? And so kind of switching the mindset would is kind of it's the challenge. It really is a challenge. 
it, it seems like we're going to have to convince people to, to challenge their own hypocrisies to an extent. Because, and what I mean by that is, you know, I'm sure that just rustled some of these jimmies. But think about it this way. Everybody says, oh, let nature take its course. Well, if there was a raging inferno in the Chattahoochee National Forest, there would be people outraged at the fact if we didn't go in there and try and manage that fire. Right. Right? So we're at this point where we recognize there's a finite resource. We're not, we can't go back in time 100, 200 years ago and prevent where we are right now. And we probably wouldn't even be able to succeed if we tried. So if we look at that, we need to find a way, I feel, to challenge people to recognize that some of these areas probably aren't safe to burn uh, from a standpoint of there's too much underneath it. Or if it burns too hot, we could lose lose uh, control of said fire. And that going in there and logging it is letting nature take its course. It's us taking ownership of the mistakes that we've made and by making these places finite. Right. And that's difficult. Well, go back to 2016. And I remember I was sitting in my deer stand. I was coughing uh, really loud. And I had uh, the skeletons of oak leaves just raining down around me because mm. right next to my house, very close to my house, it ended up coming within half mile of my house, was one of these giant wildfires. Right. It happened about the same time these Gatlinburg fires that all those mm-hmm. poor people died in. Terrible. And um, we had, you know, a perfect storm in a lot of ways. We had, there had been very little. Uh, fire in the forest for a long, long time. Right. And then we had a really, really incredible dry year. And we had fires going on all across the southern Appalachians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there were some really, from the perspective of, of us, from people, there were some bad things like Gatlinburg that happened. I will say, you know, so uh, we, my family and I, were just about to evacuate and, and the the fire stopped um, again within half a mile of the house. But I will say now this is an area that I hunt frequently for deer and turkeys and, and bears. You're gonna you're gonna put on a pin on the map where this is for <laughs> no. all the rest of us right now. And um, <laughs> well, oh, this is a big fire. It'd be too hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> on X maps, everybody. No, go ahead. But anyways, um, yeah, that's the I, I shot a big deer in there last year. Yeah. And uh, anyways, that's another story. But um, but the effects from that fire, you know, while it was a wildfire and we did put it out, um, were really, really sure. amazing. In particular, the, the, the following year after the fire, the Turkey forage, I mean, it was just, it was an amazing place and, and, uh, it had some really good ecological effects. So I'm not saying the entire forest should be like that, but we do need to get at least simulate some of these dynamic, mm-hmm. uh, natural disturbance processes back in the forest that will allow some species again, like grouse, uh, you know, to, to continue to live in our state. Right. And part of the problem is we've suppressed fire for so long, right. That the, the forest floor is so fuel, like fuel laden, like there's just, there's fuel everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so when we do have a fire, it does get out of hand quickly because we haven't been, we haven't, you know, been burning off the fuel that's in there. And so there's just like huge logs sitting there and like just, you know, piles and piles of leaves and bushes and and limbs. And it's just all fuel for a fire. And so, you know, like Chris said, you get a perfect, perfect storm happen and it gets out of control really fast because there's no, you know, we're not burning off the little bit of fuel there is. It's just, it's really catching all the fuel on the ground and really getting out of hand. So if we do more prescribed fires and do more, you know, little fire here, little fire there, a little, little bit. Sure. It, 
it uh, you know it helps control that. And so when you do have a wildfire, it doesn't get out of hand as quickly because the fuel load is not there. Right. Well, and, and that's probably another really valid point is that a wild inferno from a tinderbox probably is not the same thing as a fire rolling through some early successional habitat, right? Like that's probably got an intensity to it that has different ecological effects as well, I'd, I'd presume. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and there's and there's a lot of systems, even some of these mountain habitats that historically would have had a heavy grass component. And, you know, a lot of these fires would be more of like a ground fire. But like Nathan said, now they, you know, they happen differently. And, you know, you talk about going back to your original question, convincing people. <clears throat> and there are a lot of people, people that I see on a daily basis that I do business with that I know <laughs> that are adamant against any type of forestry or fire. They're a little more open to fire, I'll say, than forestry or herbicide sure. or some some of these other things. Um, but it's convincing them. I, I, what I'll say is that with Orient Society, we face similar, maybe even a, a steeper slope <laughs> in that we're trying to oftentimes convince people that species like snakes are, are worth considering and, and thinking about conservation. And <clears throat> I think perhaps one of the most powerful things you can do is actually bring people out into the woods um, and, and show them some of these things and show them in the examples we're talking about with some of these natural disturbance processes, bringing them out in the woods, showing them the effects of fire. I mean, after some of these fires and mountain ecosystems, I mean, these wildflower blooms are, are incredible. The forest um, opens up a lot more sun gets to the ground. It's a lot better for a lot of reptiles, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so <clears throat> I do think a powerful tool is <clears throat> bringing some of these people into the woods but, you know, again, I deal with a lot of these people every day, and I will say some of them are great people. It's just, it's be, it's gonna, there are a lot of people it's going to be very hard to, to convince. Um, I have a mixed feelings about the future of grouse in Georgia. I'm, I like to be an optimistic person, um, but. Uh, it's an uphill battle. Yeah. yeah. Severely uphill battle. Mm -hmm. what, a, what a beautiful charge, though, that we have, right? Like, your, your solution is take people outside, right? Like, who? Who's better suited to do that and take people than the folks who are reliant on those habitat transition zones? You know, you, you probably don't even have to be, you know, a Chris Jenkins, but I can take you to a place that there was a burn. If there's a, uh, a wildflower bloom, let's find some beauty in that, right? Right. I mean, also, I mean, those wildflower seeds have probably been sitting there for quite some time waiting on that fire. I mean, that's a that's a powerful. You want to talk about appealing to someone's. Uh, uh, nature loving nature, right it's like, like these yeah. seeds have been sitting here waiting for for just this moment just these moments for 40 years you know probably a fire like this hasn't ripped through in 40 years and nature has been waiting for us to allow this change to happen and you were upset about it but look at the beauty that's coming from that right. these are heirloom water wildflowers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> organic they're non-gmo like <clears throat> oh lord that's you a know, whole other uh, issue a lot of these people that i'm talking about that i know you know a lot of them don't think fire, we're kind of on the fire topic, is an important component of mountain ecosystems. Interesting. But I will tell you, as an ecologist, um, that there are plants in the Appalachians, just like there are plants down here in yep. the Longleaf Pine ecosystem, that they're adapted 
to fire. Right. I mean, there's tree species like table mountain pine. It's like you think of a ponderosa pine out west mm-hmm. or a longleaf pine down here in the coastal plain. Um, I won't go through all the details, but they have certain things about their ecology, whether it's needing fire to produce more mm-hmm. seed, needing fire to open cones. Um, we have plants that are widespread in, in certain habitats in the mountains that are very, very fire dependent. And so my point being that <clears throat> there's evidence on the landscape and there's a history, a fire history that, that we have some record of that shows fire is an important component. But there are a lot of people that, that you know, just can't accept that. So, again, back to my wanting to be optimistic. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. You know, I think I think of all the countries – that I, I think of the country that has the ability to pivot on its heel and be and that op and reward your optimism. It is, I think, this country. I mean, we are as reluctant as we are to change when we see a need for that or we're faced with an obstacle. If if the right leadership is there, we can very very quickly rise to to, to the equation. I mean, the very national forests that we're talking about right now uh, are, are are a prime example of that. I mean, we've got the opportunity and realistically, honestly, you know, I, 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 I oversimplified things when I said with the snap of our fingers, we could change the policy, but realistically, if, if how, what you say a million sales, license sales in Georgia, hunting license sales in Georgia. I don't remember off the top of my head, but we're top. I believe we're like eighth in the country in terms of the number of hunting. Licenses. Right. A lot. Right. Right. When I was there, I think it was hovering around like 854 or something like that. If every one of those people were to write their elected officials, mm-hmm. just one letter, there are dudes that have to sit there in that office and sort through that. And when they start complaining, their managers take notice. And when those managers start taking notice, those are the political advisors that are like, hey, uh, you know what's really important? <laughs> 854,000 of these letters saying, hey, we need to change the mindset of this. But, yeah. you know, it you have to you have to be willing to care. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And I wonder how much of our population really depends on public lands. How much of them really rely on that? What fraction do you think that is? Half? Rely on them more than that. But, but, um, you know, use them like for recreation. Sure, sure, sure. On a regular basis, you know, maybe half half your people. I mean, again, Georgia's kind of interesting in that the the Mm -hmm. proximity between our population center yep. and our biggest chunk of public land is very close so yeah half the people here, that live in georgia live within an hour of that it's amazing isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I saw something on that you know i, I think it's it, people recognize when things aren't right so like I, my, mom, my mom lives up in um the delonic area in the heart of the Ch- chattahoochee national forest and there are numerous biking stations like where all these people unload and for some reason they think it's fun to jump on a mountain bike and go up and down hills that just sounds like torture to my fat behind <laughs> but they enjoy it and and i'm sitting at a bar one time just a little, little diner and they were talking about the lack of things that they saw oh we saw trees oh we saw one deer oh god you saw one deer and they were having this conversation amongst themselves about why they were seeing as few animals as they were and i couldn't help myself i've never met a stranger in my life i love to talk i have a podcast for a reason and i walked up i was like you know why you didn't see any deer there's, there's no habitat change there. What are they feeding on? Why would they be in that area? And these people were like, first off, I mean, here's this dude in, in, you know, with a big bushy beard just walking up. Once they got past the shock, they started having a dialogue about it. And they were reluctant to listen, but they listened. It, and I wonder how many people, hunters, who, who I'm speaking to directly here, I wonder how, much of, how many of us are actually taking the time to reach out and talk to people about that kind of thing. 
Yeah. I'd be, I'd be. This is where my optimism would probably fail me, but I think it's probably a fraction of a fraction. I think it'd be a dis, a disappointingly low amount of people uh, have those dialogues. Right. Well, and that's, and I think that's one of the things as a chapter we want to ignite. Sure. Right. We want, we want to have these dialogues with people who are non-consumptive users, and that, like, you know, they, you know, they look at us and they think, oh, these rednecks just like to go kill deer. It's like, right. well, let's have a dialogue because. That's not all true, and sure. um, we actually really do care about these things, and we do care about the landscape. We do care about the animals. We even care about stuff we don't like to hunt, right? I mean, we can't hunt. Sure. Right? It's like, um, and, you know, I think we as a chapter in Georgia are going to – we want to be that voice to the non-consumptive users, to the people that um, that don't hunt and fish, to try to get them to see our perspective as well and to try to see their perspective, you know? I mean – it's a it's a kind of a give and take, right? Sure, it so, is. Um, you know, we want to we want to help facilitate those conversations as a chapter. Yeah, I mean, I think we're not blameless in this. No, for sure not a- at all, at all. And I think there are things that we do that is counterproductive. Absolutely, I'm not going to go down that path tonight because nope. that's a that's a we'll be here for another three hours, <clears throat> and we will just piss off everybody in the <laughs> process, regardless <laughs> if we end up, you know, right, you know, uh, taking up for people in the, in in the process. But so. Uh, I'm curious, how hard is it to make people care about reptiles and amphibians? It's real hard. It's, <laughs> I mean, does it take a passion? I cannot imagine anything more difficult to, you know. I mean, we, you know, part of my job as the CEO is raising the funds to mm-hmm. get the organization going and and uh, <laughs> to raise millions of dollars yeah. every year yeah. from people and coming up to them and say, hey. You know, we want to do some conservation work for this rattlesnake. It's, it's very difficult. <clears throat> so, okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot. Yeah. Make us care about reptiles and amphibians. <laughs> Can you? Do, is, is that is that is that something that it's a series of dinners? And, Elevator speech. And not, <laughs> yeah. No, I would say, uh, you know, I I, mean, I talk about these things every day, and uh, I, you know, I I go out and I, I'm an avid hunter and I kill all kinds of animals I'm, I'm not saying no reptile no snake should never die sure <clears throat> i'm just saying these animals are important too mm-hmm. we need to think of them as wildlife just like we think of the deer um, all of these things are interconnected we've been talking about it a little bit earlier with the grouse and the deer you know um you know a, a if if the rattlesnakes can't live in an area, there's a reason for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's going to follow that? Is it going to be the deer? Is it going to be the grouse? Is it going to be the bears? So <clears throat> there's this ecological interconnectedness of everything. And you hear, you, you may have heard it on your podcast, but you hear these analogies, and probably the most common one is the airplane, and you start taking pieces off of it, you know, and, and people don't like rattlesnakes, so they get rid of that piece. And then we get rid of this particular spider, and then, you know, a grouse disappears. And at some point, that plane's going to crash. You keep taking the, the pieces off. So the point is, is there's this this ecological kind of interconnectedness. And then I like to say, especially for some of these the reptiles people think about. When I say that, I mean like venomous snakes and big turtles and big lizards in different parts of the world and crocodiles and alligators. Like... These animals are, are oftentimes like big predatory type animals. They're animals that oftentimes get persecuted. And if they live there still, 
Mm. It means you live in a really wild place, which mm. is a valuable thing to me. And I guarantee you it's a valuable thing to those mountain bikers you were talking about. And so um, there's these intrinsic and aesthetic values to these animals. There's ecological values. Um, you know, I mean, you have even have some cultural and religious values sure. in certain certain segments of the population. So I don't know if I probably didn't convince you, but um, but, you know, they're rattlesnakes are animals too and, <laughs> yeah and we should uh we should treat them as such i feel like we're either conservationists for all of it or we're not yeah i, I mean i mean and it's just that simple i mean and, and i'm probably gonna upset somebody by having put it in such plain terms but i really i, I kind of don't care because if you're gonna sit here and and this doesn't go for non-native invasive right like I'm not saying that the anaconda should be allowed to leave, to to remain in Florida. I'm I'm not saying that. But if we're talking all things created equal, if you don't care about the songbirds and all you care about is whitetails, you're doing us a disservice to some extent. You might still create wonderful habitat, but if you aren't out there advocating for the environment as a whole and you can't see the position that a birder might have for for wanting to be able to watch birds and the habitat that comes with that, I really feel like we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot. At least we're walking around with 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 egg on our face. I mean, it's I don't know if that's how you say that phrase, but yeah. Well, we sense. want these people to accept us. We right, want, right. We want them. Well, we to, demand it. Yeah, we demand we, it. We get outraged on social media whenever they're not on our side. Right. right? Yeah, right. we should all accept each other. I want them to accept the fact that I love to hunt. Right. Um, and and you know, vice versa. I need to accept the fact that this person likes to mountain bike and and. People need to accept the fact this is, you know, you think of bird watchers. There's a huge growing population of, of what we call field herpers. These are people that with their free time, when they're not working or what they do for fun is they go out and they look for reptiles and amphibians. Really? And it might sound like a little off the wall, but it's a huge, huge growing wow. demographic. How there are cool. Facebook groups around it. There are apps that all the data is downloaded into. And these are just... You know, somebody, you know, who's a carpenter and at the end of the day, you know, they, they go out into the woods and they're looking for salamanders or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, we need to appreciate that they have that interest as well. So, yeah. Anyways. Well, and I think also if we could help bridge that divide, if you think about where we got, where we, we started this conversation about how clear cutting's a terrible thing, right? Bringing it back to the grass thing. Clear cutting's a terrible thing. That was an institutionalized thing that probably took several generations to really take fold. It started with textbooks in school, right? I mean, that's that's really, and maybe the Britannica, you know, being mentioned in, in these institutional. We don't have that, that, that block now. I don't believe that this has to be a multi-generational thing. We have got social media, we've got YouTube, we've got podcasts, we've got all these abilities that we are more connected now. I don't care what people say about the amount of time we spend on our phone. I think it's an amazing thing. I can learn more today with that freaking podcast not mine, but just the ability to listen to podcasts. That's how I, that's my primary right. educational piece now. I find things that are important. Going through the presidents, I'm I'm learning about the presidents right now from people who spent their entire lives devoted to understanding the presidents and what they did. There's someone that takes it and breaks it down into hour long segments that I can go and listen to. That this is the same thing. We have that same ability to reach people, and I wonder why it's so difficult. And I'm sure there are a variety of reasons. You probably could have three episodes on just why it's so hard to bridge that divide between. Uh, birder groups, you know, with hunters. Um, yeah. The, well, the, I mean, the bottom, the the basic, it comes down to the basic element. They think killing animals is bad for the animals. Sure. Right. Sure. And and we as hunters and conservationists know that that's not true. 
um, you know, regulated the regulated hunting and um, money, the dollars that are spent doing this is all good for these animals. And um, obviously, like unregulated and killing of animals, obviously, is not good sure. for the animals, which is why it was outlawed over a hundred years ago. And uh, it's it's why we have more deer now than when Columbus landed in wherever right. he landed. And so, like, you know, uh, that that's the bottom line. It comes down to they think that killing an animal is a bad for the thing for the animal. And it's just, and, and like I said, we as hunters, we know that's just not true. Yeah. yeah so. And I, I truly think that to have grouse and to have all of these animals in somewhat balanced, if you will, but to have these ecological interconnections, exactly what Nathan said. We need to think about not the individual animal. We need to think about at higher levels of organization, levels like, say, the population. Sure. And and that's how we will maintain these species. If you are so concerned with, with a, a, a single animal and how it feels, I'm not advocating to go out and you know, kick puppies or, or whatever it might be. Um, but I'm just, I'm just saying we really need to focus on those levels, you know, with grouse. Do we want to have grouse in the North Georgia mountains? If so, we need to focus on their populations. So, but I agree with you, Nathan, that that is one of the, the biggest things that we, the, the hunting community is facing is that, you know, people, they're not thinking like that. Right. You know, they're thinking, and media is driving a lot of this, but they're thinking about individual animals and, you know, how cute that individual is. And, mm-hmm. uh, Anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphize. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, I can get it out. But how much do you think that of that lands with us? Not trying to tell our message. Because I currently date a woman who has a, a master's in fine arts. Her friends were, are, are in many cases still vegan, vegetarian. They've got a social consciousness that is very mainline. Maybe not mainline or mainstream, but, you know, it's trendy. It's It's what a lot of people think conservation is right now, how to actively participate. And they ran into a buzzsaw with me because they had to tolerate me because I was dating their, their friend. You know, I was married to their friend. And I knocked down those barriers in a year with these people. Now, granted, they had to force to have conversations with me. But I've got I've got friends of hers that were vegans, don't eat meat, or vegetarians don't eat meat. They would eat the venison burgers that I would bring or eat the venison uh, jerky that I would make. How much of that really falls on us? Because I really feel like it's disproportionately our fault. I, I would I would agree with you, and I'd say a lot of people, as I think you mentioned earlier on social media, a lot of us hunters might have the way we respond to certain things sure. might not yep. be very productive. Um, and if I everybody see Nathan do it all the time, he goes right yeah. after yeah. people on you Facebook. Know, I, just, I fly off the handle every day. <laughs> out of control. Yeah, but um, you know, if if everybody could do that, yeah, that you know, and and turn that around, if they could talk to sure. you about their their I think the world would be a better place. But um, so, uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think a lot of that's on us. And, and as hunters, I think we need to we need to be able to listen a little bit sure. better, think, and then communicate. Right. So Explain, like explain a little bit better. That's too. what I was about to say is yeah. e- explain. We're, we're, we're real quick to throw facts at them, but we don't very often have – I feel like the explained is the next level. You have to have a dialogue with that person. And I also want to say this. You can't have that dialogue on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So don't oh. try. 
No, that's not the forum. You not just it. you that that is if you ever grew up and, and somebody told you to turn the other cheek, it applies most in your life to Facebook. Just walk away. Right. Walk uh, the freak right. away. It's it's not it's not going to improve it. your situation. Yep. Thank you, buddy. So let's bring this back. We we went down a rabbit hole. I like rabbit holes. Rabbit tastes fine, but. Tonight's film featured several different segments, several different purposes. One of the things I noticed as we went through that was the message was not, while it was uniform, it was different. It was it was a cohesive movement of different talking points that all coalesced into obviously the importance of public lands. Right? Can we break apart some of those pieces because it wasn't all just hundred year old, you know, strands of of national forest. It was also uh, introduction of different species, and I'm going to shut up and let you guys take it from here. But uh, yeah, so uh, the film was broken down into I don't know how many segments, like eight, seven, or eight different segments, and and they in they were they were based on different states and different grouse in those states. So it started in Alaska with the city grouse, the blue grouse, where they hunt them with 22s and listen for them hooting in the trees which is a super interesting way to hunt a grouse yeah in the spring in the spring yeah exactly right. it's almost like a turkey gobble mm-hmm. it's like yeah. it's like almost like turkey hunting and you listen for the sound and you go to the animal yeah um you call those what grouse sooty grouse sooty so, so they're like a blue it's a blue grouse so the first time i heard that i heard that dialogue before we went into the movie i swore people were saying city grouse and i was like that is <laughs> city cool grouse, yeah. that is really that is not what they're saying in case it struck you that way on the podcast i just wanted to correct it cuz yeah. i was like oh city grouse wow that's awesome i think i got these ideas of like urban chicago with these guys going out yeah, there yeah, shooting yeah. grouse right, out of yeah, people's yeah. you know front yards or something but that's not um, what we're talking about here but yeah blue grouse were split into two species the city grouse which is more of kind of coastal Okay. You know, these temperate rainforest species. And then you have the dusky, which is more of your inland. Like gotcha. You might hunt them Rocky in like Mountain Montana type stuff, or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, and then uh, then we transitioned into North Dakota. North Dakota. We went to North Dakota to sharp-tailed grouse. We went to Montana talking about sage grouse, which is a huge, a huge thing. Right. Because uh, sage grouse are, are um, they almost got listed sure. last year. Like in yeah, I worked on sage grouse in Idaho for yeah, years. Yeah, they're research uh, and they're research. a really interesting bird. They're super complicated. They have a lot of specific needs, and um, they move really far for a grouse. We had we had grouse that would migrate. Um, you know, would say for example, spend the spring in Idaho and then fly up over the Rocky Mountains and like spend the winter in Montana or, or vice versa. Just incredible yeah. long distance migrations and. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but sage grouse and prairie chickens, are they the same thing or are they different things? They're different. Yeah. Different things, okay. Because they do, the sage grouse do the whole strut, mm-hmm. like puff the belly, puff the chest out right. thing that you see like in the wildlife films and stuff like that. Um, and then we move to... Um, we don't have time for it, but the story of how you trap a sage grouse is incredible. I mean, it's oh, a lot we'll of put, fun. Put a pin in that. And if Go we ahead. Do Sorry, have time, yeah, we're we, coming yeah, back we'll to come, that. We'll come back. We might come back to that. <laughs> you can't just drop that. We're gonna <laughs> yeah. find time. That is. Uh, that so, might be the that might be the title of this podcast: yeah. trapping a trapping sage, a sage with Chris Jenkins. <laughs> um, so then we went to Minnesota um, with a all female cast, which is uh, great to see. We actually had about twenty percent female attendance tonight. I saw um, that. That was impressive. Which was really good. I, yeah. yeah, I love that and. uh and they were, you know, they were in Minnesota 
hunting rough grouse and woodcock in the north spruce, spruce woods. Yeah. Oh, spruce. That's right. They were spruce grouse. You're right. In the very north part of Minnesota in the spruce spruce forest. And then we went to North Carolina to the Appalachian Mountains near and dear to our hearts uh, with Darrell Smith, who's yep. a Georgia guy. And um, they were hunting rough grouse up there. Uh, and they were saying, like, you know, in, in the Midwest and, like, the Northeast, you're looking for a good day is, like, 10 or 12 flushes. A, like, mm-hmm. a phenomenal day in the Southeast is one. Right. Like, you get 1.1 flush, and you're, like, on cloud nine. Because mm-hmm. there's just not that many grouse left down here. Um, and then we went to we went to North Dakota uh, for sharp-tailed grouse, and they talked about how in North Dakota, if it's not posted – it's free to access. Yep. Um, which is a amazing thing they it got really going is. out there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the underlying theme of all these, did I miss one? I might've missed one. New Hampshire. Yeah. We yep. went to New Hampshire with the rough grouse and, yep. uh, Woodcock society. Yep. Um, and they, they talked about, they talked a lot about managing the landscape too. Yeah. Um, they even showed some like logging trucks and logging right. operations going on. Uh, which I think was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and then there was the one that was introduced. Which one was that? Oh, Tarmigan. Tarmigan. Yes. Yes. And that's something I want to do. Oh, anybody, it's on my list now. For like a 12,000 yes. foot yes. hike, I'm, I'm in. Because yeah. that looked like a blast. When was the last time you saw 12,000 feet, though? Uh, Never. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's brutal. I was, last time I was in a plane. It's good, it's good stuff. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm not going to take it off of that. that no, I've seen, I've seen 10,000 a few times. Yeah, so, okay, yeah, so you know. I've been there. It yeah, starts yeah. to suck about 10. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. I have good stories. I've hiked over almost to 20,000. So. Nice. Brutal. Oh, the yeah. Andes. Mad respect. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, but anyway, and, and they're hunting at you know, super high elevations, and they hiked 10 miles in, and they were fly mm-hmm. fishing in these beautiful, pristine, um, like, mountain lakes and yep. stuff. It was, it was awesome. Just, like I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. Right. Um, but the whole underlying theme of the whole film was the whole the public land. Sure. Like all of these places that they were hunting were public land, and all these places were important to the to the species of grouse they were hunting uh, because they were public land. Sure. And because they were preserved and you know for um, the our enjoyment really and um, and for the betterment of wildlife in America. So it was a really well put on film. If you if you're not familiar with Project Upland, go look them up on YouTube. They've got a lot of films out. It's all super high quality. Yeah, it's really really well produced. I stuff. thought it did a good job too. Of you know usually, you know you can categorize hunting media if you will. You can think of it in terms of whitetails and there's sure. different types of yep. of media out there. And and it it wasn't just like people dropping birds right. left and right. I mean, they, they obviously were hunting birds and there were some mm-hmm. birds that were shot, but they just did a great job of like showing like the connection between the hunter and the dogs and the dogs working and the landscapes yes. and, yes. and just, just really like mesmerizing. Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of B roll, but it, it a just lot of B roll. Yeah. <laughs> came but they made B roll. But the, I was about to say they B-roll. made B roll feel like it should be A roll. Like yeah, it, yeah, they yeah. really like it was one of those things. It wasn't just like hey, I don't have anything to put here, so we're going to show you the dogs. Yeah, it was like exactly. they worked hard right. to get that shot. Right. And I think the most impressive thing to me the whole time was I went in with the expectation that gruff house, gruff grouse hunting is is hard. You don't shoot very many birds. The cool thing about that film, it wasn't all that way. 
Like there, there were areas where it was extremely. They ran the whole gambit of the, here are areas that are extremely in, desperately in need of our attention because we couldn't get on birds. And then there were other places where the guys like, yeah, I mean, if you really wanted to, you could come out here and just wipe out a whole colony if you mm-hmm. wanted to, you know. And, and some of that was different circumstances. That was the introduced species. Yeah. That was the introduced species. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even the dude in Alaska didn't have any didn't have a, yeah. too hard of a time. True. North Dakota, on they North Dakota, North they got on birds yep. pretty quick. Yeah. Um, I think it was interesting to see the spectrum of we need to take action not only to restore something and to and to conserve something, but also we need to recognize that we've got some very amazing opportunities to keep something as it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that yeah. doesn't mean preservation. But right. just just I mean that's just want to bring that full cycle yeah, yeah, back. Yeah. Conservation <laughs> is not just a, a a keep it as it is mm-hmm. um, um, mindset. So what 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 were your main? What do you think the main hope? And do you think it was achieved? What do you think the main hope of that film was? And do you think it was achieved in Southwest Georgia? Because there was a diverse crowd there yeah, that was probably never even. So uh, something just fell out the door. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what that was. <laughs> I think uh, it was, <laughs> uh, that was the uh, ghost of Grouse Pass. <laughs> yeah. I'll put us on the edge for a second there. Like, oh. yeah, about to draw down on something I didn't right. have. You know, <laughs> somebody's uh, coming through the front door. Yeah, right. So I, I mean, I'll tell you our thought process. So the original idea. So our, our national headquarters, you know, our Montana office contacted me to to about this and they wanted to host one of these and i originally thought atlanta mm-hmm. and we're gonna we've had atlanta events or we're gonna have many more atlanta events and i just thought thomasville being kind of the the quail hunting bob white quail hunting capital of of the southeast arguably um, one of them certainly um, just the bird hunting tradition here while it's not grouse I uh, just thought it would be a perfect place sure. to hold it. So uh, uh, multiple things were kind of running through my mind. As we develop the Georgia chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, I don't want it to necessarily – it's going to be to some degree like this. But our state, unlike some other states that have multiple large populations, we have one giant population center. But besides that, we're actually one of the more rural states in the right. country. Yeah, And so uh, – you know, I want to do as much of this into the future as we can, reaching out to, you know, I expect to have events on the coast and up in the mountain regions and different parts of the state. So that was part of it in my mind, too. Come to a place with a lot of history, um, reaching out to a different corner of our state. Um, and, and you have any yeah, and that? I, or? Well, and I th- yeah, and I think, like you said, kind of reaching out to a different corner of the state. Um, and because, you know, there's not a ton of public land in this area of the state. Mm. Um, you got to drive a little bit yeah, to get to some. Definitely. Um, and it's very plantation based, very. kind of uh, pay to hunt type areas and things like that. And so we would love to have a decent, you know, membership down here. Um, but the, but you know, it's just not the, it's sure. not really the same, right? Sure. In, as it is like in North Georgia or something like that. So, um, but I think doing this event here really brought BHA to this part of the state. Sure. And, I, and you know, I bet a lot of people didn't even know who we were, you know, never heard of us. And so, and I think having, having the event here tonight 
and getting people excited about what we're doing. And, I'm, you know, hopefully that kind of starts spreading through this area and people start getting excited and we maybe continue to start having, you know, we have some more events down here and, and next time, instead of like 50 people, we'll have a hundred people, Yeah, and, you know, and we'll just keep kind of stepping it up, stacking it up. And I think, you know, in, a, in the hope is, you know, obviously just bring awareness for public lands sure. and how important they are in, um, in different parts of the state. Um, cause it takes everybody, it takes all kinds, right? It takes, right. it takes, it takes people in Thomasville and Savannah and Macon and Atlanta and, um, you know, everywhere. So, you know, that was one of the main goals. And I think, I think we've, we've spread the word through Southwest Georgia, um, pretty effectively tonight. And, and I don't know if it was a goal, but it, it was kind of interesting. And we did talk about it in the planning and your testament to this, but the concept that like this region of Georgia is kind of interesting because, you know, a lot of the, the bigger population centers are actually down in Florida. And so the concept of, of uh, you know, of, of having kind of multiple states coming together here, it's, it was just interesting to see a number of Florida people, yeah. um, you know, involved like yourself. So that was not necessarily something was planned. We had talked about right. proximity to Tallahassee, but that was that was kind of interesting. You know, I, I think I, I come away with maybe two veins of thought here. Um, one from the public land perspective. Growing up, I was one of the fortunate. I didn't realize it. I had no idea. I'm, I'm certain someone told me or made remarks. I grew up on, on 1,500 acres. I had the run of 1,500 acres. I could chase whatever species were there. There was relatively limited, but I could do whatever I wanted to. I had salt water running right up to the front of my house. I could catch redfish out my front yard. I could go shoot squirrels in my backyard. And if I was lucky enough, I could go shoot marsh rabbits as well. You know, like, I just, and I just did, I went where I wanted to when I wanted to. And I didn't know that was abnormal, right? Like, that 1,500 acres to me felt like a freaking national forest, right? Like, it was just... And I and now looking back, it, it it utterly pains me to think about all the times it's like, eh, I'm not gonna go today. You know, that was that was rare. That was that was an opportunity that I left on the table, and there's nothing I could do about that. I know, but I come to Tallahassee, and I don't have that property anymore, and I'm forced to figure out what's going on. Public lands are my obvious my obvious choice, and it's difficult and it's hard to navigate. But I'm lucky to have a metric s load of of public land right there around me to figure it out and like you said in southwest georgia you don't have a lot of that but what georgia has is an astronomical amount of funding to purchase public land and they're going to spend that money a where scientists tell them to put to to put that money like right now they're gobbling up money in the altamaha river valley which totally on board with right but land goes up for sale all the time and it can be leased all the time. And if people in southwest Georgia were to, to, to demand it, they could see an increase. I'm not going to say there's going to be acres sure. for every person, right? And there's no right. chicken in everybody's pot. Um, but the money is there for, with the state of Georgia. You've got a remarkable opportunity. And I think I wonder how much of this film tour struck people to realize, oh, crap, this isn't normal. Where I'm at in southwest Georgia is kind of an odd phenomenon of a lack of public land. There are these vast places mm-hmm. elsewhere. And yeah. I, I wonder if that thought process will start to creep into people's minds. Yeah, because you have a lot of Florida be boys up there. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that you know, the land acquisition you're talking about. So I, through my day job, 
you know, I've been very involved with the acquisition of land. I should have known. Because most of the most of the land that's being acquired right now in Georgia in recent times has been linked to the gopher tortoise, so this, this giant tortoise. And so we have what's called the Georgia Gopher Tortoise Conservation Initiative. I'm one of the steering committee chairs along with um, some DNR uh, folks. Actually, I'm the chair of the management stewardship subcommittee. But anyways, group of us are working on adding a lot of new public land. And there's potential to, to include it in the southwest as well. But I do think your point is – Right to hear from the public, their wants and desires, um, that that could be important because we're making choices. You know, we're you know not every piece of good gopher tortoise habitat in this case in the state is going to be protected. We're going to protect a set number of them, sure, and sure. we're deciding that right now and making it happen. So, um, yeah, hearing people speak up, and yeah, it's a good thing. So the other the other major train is for, I for the first time went out to the Rocky Mountains. And this was back in September. And I'm coming from Florida where I recognize I've got an abundance of public land. Right. And I go out to freaking Colorado and I recognize I had no idea what an abundance of public land was. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I have, you just, if you've never left the Southeast, you don't know what public land looks like until you've gone out West. And I'm going to let you know right now, two unfortunate facts. One, you've waited too long to go out there. You should have gone 10 years ago. Okay. That's fact number one. And fact number two, you're never going to look at your public land the same because when you get back, everything's a disappointment. It's just I love it. I love my public lands. If you try and take it, I'll have a, a, a conniption, okay? But it doesn't change the fact that it's just the the the, the, the friggin' size. It's just it's different. Oh, it's not, it's not. not even. Not, yeah. It's not even the same game. We're not it's even. Different. We're not even talking about the same. You know, set of rules here. So we go out to Colorado. I do this elk hunt, and it's just this monstrous. Which, by the way, I saw grouse. I was super thrilled about that. It. It. it I saw them several times. Was so. Uh, uh, Trying to 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 fight through the suck of being at you know eleven thousand feet of elevation, mm. that it didn't register to me that those aren't large doves in the tree. You know, like you know, I could eat that for yeah, I could I eat that for dinner <laughs> if I wanted to. You know, so it it was like later at later on at night, I'm sitting there in the can in the in the hammock. I'm like, oh! I'm noticing a trend that happens a lot to me. But I, you know, I'm laying in bed and I'm like, God, that was a grouse. You know, like I'm I'm logging in my phone. Like you saw a grouse today. I was like, uh. the Joker. I mean, I got like twenty feet from the freaking thing. Mm. You know, like it would have been a pot shot with a bow. Never even mm. thought about it. You know, but. Um, I was going somewhere with that, and I've lost. Oh, Rocky Mountains. Rocky Mountains. I went out there, and I got a taste for what public lands are, and I got a taste for what properly managed, balanced, or at least more properly managed and a more balanced use of public lands look like. And I come back home, and I bring that here, and I look at a disproportionate use value for each of the different groups, and we've got this really twisted East Coast idea of what public lands, how they should be utilized amongst people. And I'm not saying they do everything right in the Rocky Mountains. I I can't speak to that. I just know that when you look at the symbiosis that happens over there and all the different users that are using it, you come back here and it's not the same. And I'd encourage people to go and experience public lands. If you happen to live where there's an abundance of them, go somewhere else and experience it. Bring that, bring that, 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 that new culture that you've identified with, and, and you've brought those two pieces together, and advocate for if you're not happy with where you are with your public lands, to get with with folks like you guys to try and be that change that you want. Because 
realistically, most states aren't going to have what Georgia has, which is just this bottomless coffer of money, it seems like, that they're just, you know, <laughs> gobbling up money. I thought Florida had all the money. No, yeah, no, yeah. no, we have all the snowbirds. That's what we've got. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, so you got to make the best of what you've got, and you need to be active in it because it can be better in a lot of cases. Grass isn't always greener, but it, it can be in a lot of ways. Yeah. Absolutely. So, with that, gentlemen, do we need to go to the uh, sagegrass story, or do you have – you want me to tell you how to trap a sage? I'm sorry, you yeah, know. I <laughs> I thought I had more, but you know, I, I'm. There's it's good fun. Yeah. So, sage grouse. First of all, you saw this in the in the the film today or tonight, but sage grouse lek and what that it, that's their kind of breeding system. That means is that males go to relatively open areas in the sagebrush, and in an area could be could be relatively small. It could be the size of this house or maybe four or five of these houses. These males set up these like small territories and they display and that's where they're, mm-hmm. you know, blowing out their chest and they have these air sacs that are bright yellow and they're fanning out their tails. And um, it, that's an amazing thing to see in and of sure. itself. And then the females come in and the females make selections based on, you know, the males. So what we do what we did, I haven't done this in quite a while, we'd go out to these lecking grounds because the females, first of all, we're trying to track the females. When you're studying the biology of animals, um, females are almost always the important ones. Um, you know, that's why everybody's always upset. They don't do a lot of studies on big bucks because the females are the important right. ones in terms yeah. of reproduction. Yeah. Anyway, so we're trying to, and most studies typically are trying to catch the females. So you take a four-wheeler and you get two people on a four-wheeler. And once the sun goes down, so at night, you go out and you've got a spotlight attached to the four-wheeler. And you just drive around through these giant, endless sagebrush landscapes, like some of the ones we saw today in the film. And you're using this spotlight. And, you know, a sage grouse has pretty good eye shine. So you're looking for a female sage grouse near these lek areas. And then when you find one, one person gets off of the four-wheeler and has a huge net so you drive up to the female you get about 100 yards from her maybe like a football field or maybe 75 yards from her and the driver takes the spotlight and keeps it on (laughs) the sage grouse the other person gets off with this giant net like a landing net sort of a big landing net like you know maybe eight feet long and this big net that could catch a sage grouse and then we have a boom box from you know, I date myself a little bit, <laughs> but we have a boom box. <laughs> we did actually use cassette tapes. But anyways, nice. we had a boom box attached to the four-wheeler, and you turn – we used Def Leppard. We turned <laughs> up Def Leppard as loud as you could, and the person on the four-wheeler gunned it and drove straight at the sage grouse, keeping the spotlight in this animal's eyes with the Def Leppard, leopard blaring, and the person next to him sprinting next to the four-wheeler, and just, if you're driving the four-wheeler, you get about five feet from that sage grouse, and you turn away at the last second, and the person right next to him comes down with with the net, uh, hopefully on the sage grouse, and you catch the animal and process it. But, I mean, it's quite... Whoa. I mean, the running part is actually the difficult part. I mean, you're literally sprinting through sagebrush for 50, <laughs> 75 Yeah, yards. yeah, yeah. So... Anyways, that's how that's how we did it. We'd do that all night, and then the sun would come up. Actually, what we'd do is then we'd we'd set up these blinds 
in the legs. So we had these like, we'd use rebar and set up burlap. So you had this like super low blind that you could lay in and we'd crawl into those before light, fall asleep for an hour or two after trapping. And then you'd wake up and you'd just have these sage grouse all around you. I mean, I had sage grouse walking a foot in front of my face, just going boop, 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 doing their uh, well, display. It was amazing. Anyways, that's how you trap sage grouse. With Def Leppard in a spotlight. Yep. There you go. That, that sounds like something straight out of Florida. I'm not I was going to say, that's, <laughs> that's some Florida redneck <laughs> stuff right there. <laughs> that's yeah. got Florida cracker written all yeah. over it. Yeah. There's somebody listening to this podcast right now is like, my great granddaddy came up with that <laughs> <Right>. plan. <laughs> right. Right. That's like a Latchman County stuff right there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's how we get our kids at night you know uh (laughs) well what were you studying though like what were you trying to figure out with those studies were you geotagging them or uh we were working on a department of energy site which would be like down here in the southeast we have the savannah river site in south carolina Uh, big nuclear facility um in idaho huge like this doe site was like the size of the entire state of rhode island so anyways Really good, at the time, relatively pristine sagebrush habitats. Pretty good sage-grouse population. So, basically, we were developing a plan for the Department of Energy so they could try to continue to to maintain those populations over the long term. But the reason we were trapping them as part of developing that plan is we were putting radio collars on the birds or GPS collars by which we could follow you know, where the birds were going at different times of the year and figure out where their winter areas were, where their, uh, you know, brood rearing and nesting and all of these things. And we were studying you know, everything from looking at predation rates on nests. And, and that's where we learned some of this I was talking about, where we had sage grouse that would, like, fly over the Rocky Mountains between seasons. So, How yeah. interesting. Yeah. I bet you sage, animal. I bet you they're one of the mo- more studied grouse just because of the ability to catch them, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you think about some of those the places fun, that the we fun saw, way you do catch them, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. you yeah. have a blast all night long, <laughs> blasting <laughs> heavy metal, there, and <laughs> there are ten thousand rednecks trying to find a boombox that takes cassettes right, right now. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I can make a career out of this, ma. <laughs> uh, but but I mean, if after you watch that film, I mean, realistically, studying some of these birds must be agonizingly yeah. difficult. Yeah. yeah. I mean, first off, the ability to find some in the Appalachia has got to be a mess. Well, yeah, they used to do drumming studies in the in the Chattahoochee. Mm-hmm. And um, drumming was, as in listening, like, listening audio for devices. Because that's how the leopard. That's how the males attract That's how the male rough grouse attracts a female. Right, right. So they beat their wings and they make this drumming sound. And they used to do them. But I think you know a few years, you know, several years ago, they quit doing them because they just weren't hearing any drumming. They just were, they just weren't any grouse anywhere. Yep. So probably and probably the most comprehensive Southern Appalachian rough grouse study was done right on the Georgia. It was actually done in North Carolina, but it was done on the Georgia line, um, so pretty close in Macon County, and um, it was a PhD student out of University of Tennessee, and she did, I believe it was a she. Anyways, really interesting study, looked at habitat selection, looked at food and on and on. And if anybody's interested in rough grouse in the southern Appalachians, that's probably the best source. And you can go on Google Scholar and you can search for and you can get all these scientific papers. They can be hard to read, but I'll tell you, that's how I prep for hunting. I'm always, I read like scientific Scientific papers papers, on deer ecology. You know, that's how I'm. 
I learn things. So. That's yeah. Anyways, when you have a PhD in ecology, that's I was how you learn say, things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I was Start. gonna make that joke, and then I realized that the other day I was going through spreadsheets because I'm an accountant. I was going through spreadsheets of encounters and where and trying to find trends. So I was going to poke there fun you. at that, and then I realized I use I Excel to, to, <laughs> yeah. to try and get on deer. So it's it's yeah, no they, it's yeah. no different. Uh, yeah. Well, gentlemen, I think uh, well. This will be the latest time we've ever hit in on a podcast as well. So we're setting records here. I'm I'm heartbroken at the fact that we started this so late because I feel like we could keep talking for hours. The good news is the three of us live within close proximity of, of each other. And I have every intention of linking up with you guys and doing more of these. Um, but... There are people who are listening right now that are either sold on this idea or they're not. If they're sold on it, where can they go to find more more information on Public Grouse? On Public Grouse? Um, on the film festival. Yes. Um, I would go on Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website, and um, you can Google Public Grouse. Um, it'll take you. There's there's a whole series of web pages right on our, our main site that will tell you more about it. Yeah, and um, if you want to learn more about the Chattahoochee Foothills Landscape Project that sure. we're uh, working pretty closely with, um, do you know the website? It, uh, you can Google it and it'll if, pop up. If you Google it, it's it's the na- it's on the National Forest website. If you yeah. Google okay. Chattahoochee National Forest and you Google Foothills Landscape Planning Project, you'll you know all of the planning materials that we've been developing. We being broad group stakeholders over years now that you'll be able to find all of that. So. Yeah, there's like a 230-page paper that you can read if you really right. want to get into the weeds with it. Um, but uh, a lot of good information, and it really seems like the all the stakeholders have done their due diligence, and it, it seems like a pretty good plan all in all. Well, so. do you gentlemen want a few minutes to talk to that plan? Because we can, we can definitely include that. Uh, I mean, the, the main plan is like uh, prescribed burns in certain areas, okay. some thinning in certain areas, and just general habitat improvement, uh, you know, yeah. improving stream, stream, like cul- like repairing culverts and roads. Okay, um, it's really just general habitat and national forest improvements. Um, but but in an area that has not been managed for you know back right. to our previous conversation right for a long long time. So they're pretty pretty standard things. You know the types of things. You know we were we as Georgia BHA were pretty supportive of that. You know, the other thing I'd say that is a big priority for for BHA is access. And that doesn't – when lots of people hear access, they think that just means like ATV trails. Um, That isn't necessarily what what we're talking about. And so, you know, some of the things that we commented on, at least I did personally, but but from my my role at BHA was, you know, one thing I want to make sure happens. I want to see this management happen, but I want to make sure that all of these – you know, they need to access to do forestry. They need to access, they need to create fire breaks. You know, I want to make sure that, that, you know, those, those are closed off after, and we don't all of a sudden have a forest that has all of this motorized access. I'm not against motorized access. access. I use it. (laughs) (laughs) With Florida, we've got way too much of it. But, but, um, but yeah, so, so, you know, it's, it, there's some of the devils in the detail. And I will say, um, that, uh, I will likely be a BHA representative on a committee that's coming together with the Forest Service to help mm-hmm. um, ensure how this plan is implemented on the ground. It has a couple hurdles that it's going through now. The public comment period, which just um, completed, we haven't heard the results from that. But, but 
you know, so soon we'll have a seat, BHA will have a seat at the table um, where we're very directly working on not planning now, but how is this implemented? <clears throat> okay, but let's back up for a second. You said all the stakeholders are fairly on board with this or on board working in the same direction. What what transpired to get all the stakeholders or are all the stakeholders? I wouldn't say all the stakeholders are on okay. board. There's, there are, I mean, you know, there are. Did a, I fabricate that? A couple groups. Okay. I, I, I mean, well, so what I will say is that, you know, this is a, lo- a long ongoing process that, right. that I've been involved with for years now, going to various meetings and right. forest services hold these planning uh, exercises by which they're trying to get certain pieces of information. And I will say in general, the forest service did a really good job of bringing together all of the stakeholders and, you know, these, these types of things are about compromise. So, sure. you know, I might not get everything that I think should happen to the forest and the mountain biker here might not yep. this fisherman here. And so <clears throat> anyways, I feel like they did a really good job of that and pulling together all of those pieces. Um, now with the plan together, I will say there are some groups that are very, very extreme groups that are, are very upset about it. And so there is, yeah. but, but I do think the, the forest services recognize it's not just us. Um, I mean, there, there are large groups of people that would like to see some more early successional habitat on that national forest. And I, th- I think it's really a majority I think a good number of, of hunters and fishermen actually came out and commented. Uh, so um, I do think it was a good stakeholder process. There are some groups, some individuals, and some entities that are very upset with the plan. Uh, but I would say overall there's a larger number of people and groups that are, that are pretty happy with how it came together in a collaborative stakeholder-type process. Well, and compromise is what this country was kind of founded on. So, so uh, you know, democratic society. That's, yeah. that's the way you got to work it. Yeah. I mean, nothing's ever going to be perfect. We have to tweak things as we go. But, you know, I think back to when Benjamin Franklin was sitting there and they're like, hey, we can continue to argue about this all day long. But at the end of the day, we have to put something forth and we can tweak it as we go. And I kind of feel like sometimes we need to do a better job of... I know we compromise on a lot as 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 hunters. We do. We, we we tend to give up more than a lot of people. But I think sometimes we could we could find a better way of of compromising. Compromising doesn't mean you yield ground. It just means that there's an exchange. Right. You know. So, well, gentlemen, with that, unless you've got any, did you have something to say? No. Uh-uh. No, no, you're I'm good. good. Yeah, I'm just like okay. I I enjoyed it, man. It was really good. Discussion I, I, we had. I'm gonna have to drive up to Atlanta. We're gonna have to do this again. Yep. So this is how I want to conclude this. I want you to give a shout out to the, whomever you are feel love for BHA Cast and Blast. Tell people why, and then let's tease a, con- a further conversation about Orien that we're gonna have. So great. All yeah, right. Uh, well, if you want to hear my voice more, um, which I can't imagine why, uh, <laughs> you can follow the podcast I have, uh, Cast and Blast Florida. Um, and we talk about all kind of things, including not limited to hunting, fishing, little Debbie's, um, <laughs> hot dogs, um, TV shows, yeah. uh, it, a lot of, you know, inane things that, uh, doesn't have anything to do with the outdoors, but we also talk about it, the outdoors. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited about Georgia BHA and the direction we're headed and getting rolling this summer. Uh, we're, we're all pumped and ready to get going. So. We're about to lo- launch our social media. We have a southeast regional social yep, media presence yep. where 
you know, in the next couple months, we'll be launching our Georgia specific. So right. keep so your eyes out for follow that. Follow it. Yeah. Okay. Your turn, sir. Great. Well, I'd love to talk about snakes with you. Yeah. So, uh, Orient like Society. Catch some snakes. <laughs> yeah, come on up. We'll, yeah. I'll take you out in the field. I'll put a rattlesnake in your hand. Um. <laughs> <laughs> can, can, can I put it in the frying pan? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, well, the places I'm going to take you are places that we're studying those. Okay. So all right, all right. I would so no. prefer you did not. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, anyways, uh, first of all, to, to learn more about what the Orient Society does, you know, f- best place to go is to our website, which is at Orianne, which is O R I A N N E dot O R G. Um, and from there, you'll find all kinds of things uh, about the organization. And I do quite a bit of uh, kind of snake focused awareness work, snake safety presentations, uh, t- teaching about biology, how to do snake bite treatment in the field, those sure. types of things. And I travel all over doing those all over the southeast. Um, so, you know, if you see one of those, keep your eyes out for them. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I'll just leave you with that. I am I'm really snakes and hunting are really the two big things I'm passionate about in my life. And, you know, outside of my family and and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just I'm passionate about snakes. And, uh, you know, I've I've spent my entire life learning about them uh, and. And so I'm eager to share that knowledge. I'd love to have you come up and yeah. and I'll, I'll tell you everything I know. And, and uh, like I said, I'll put a snake in your hand. So I have to end this podcast with humor, so I'm going to ask you a, a question. Mm-hmm. Is the stereotype of having your buddy suck on a snake bite, is that is that real? Um, Does that work? <laughs> the, the, yeah, the joke about, yeah. you know, the snake yeah. bite on the ass. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, no, in general, <laughs> if you're asking, does that really work? No, I mean, typically anything that you could physically suck out of a snake bite wound, yeah. you know, isn't in your system anyways, and anything that's in your system you couldn't suck out. I mean, it, gotcha. in, in general, so so it's yeah, just yeah. a sick prank to pull on your buddy. Or yeah, well, no, no. I mean, you can go to Walmart and right now and buy a snake bite kit that has a razor blade. It just doesn't do anything. It's actually more dangerous if you think about it. Where are you most likely to get a venomous snake bite? Either on your lower arm or yeah. your lower leg. Then you just got bit by a snake. So think about the state of mind that you might be in. And then you're going to take a razor blade out. <laughs> and you're going to start <laughs> slashing at your wrist. It's just uh, yeah. it does more damage yeah. than sounds than Sounds kosher. Those, these are the things, though, when I give these snake safety seminars. And, again, I do them. I did one at Rendezvous yeah. last year. I did multiple. Um those are the types of things I talk about in depth is, is what to do, what not to do. And most of it's what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gentlemen, with that, we're going to end it. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow the gentlemen that uh, have, have made this possible. Go RSVP for your uh, for whatever public grouse tour, uh, film tour may be closest to you. Get involved, but most importantly, get outside and enjoy the great outdoors.